Take a network break, spin up a virtual donut or two, and join us for our weekly analysis of tech news. We've got stories on Cumulus Network, Sophos, and more. Today's show is sponsored in part by CDN77. CDN77 is trusted by the European Space Agency. It supports the latest tech innovations and provides fast, secure, and reliable content delivery all around the world. You can learn more at cdn77.com slash packetpushers. Today's show is also sponsored in part by ExtraHop, the enterprise cyber Linux company delivering performance and security from the inside out. ExtraHop offers complete visibility with machine learning to help you make quick, confident decisions about your IT environment. You can explore the ExtraHop performance platform at extrahop.com slash, you guessed it, packetpushers. And if you want to learn more about ExtraHop, stay tuned after the news. We've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with ExtraHop. We're going to talk about cloud networking and the use of network detection and response for visibility and security in the cloud. That's a very useful discussion because I didn't realize that AWS and Azure had enabled tapping technologies for their VPCs. So now you can take a raw packet data capture straight into your uh, network uh, detection and response systems or your network data recorders. Yes, or your packet broker or whatever, but you get virtual... Yeah, it replaces your packet broker. You can feed it into a packet broker if you've got multiple destinations, but yeah. you don't capturing the packets is now a hell of a lot simpler than right. it was before. It's yeah. now native uh, traffic mirroring, yeah. Yeah, which I didn't know, so that was a good discussion. Okay, yeah, check it out. It's the end of the show. All right, uh, we've got some news, but first, a uh, one FU uh, from Daniel Dibsway. Uh, he said we could use his name, so we did. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, in a recent episode, we had talked about Forward Networks. They landed tens of millions of dollars in VC money in a Series C round. Uh, Forward Networks does network verification using formal verification mathematical techniques. Uh, he followed up with a comment basically saying he thinks formal verification is a feature, not a product, which is, I think, something that you also mentioned, Greg. Mm, yeah. uh, uh, and he also said that uh, simplified topologies like leaf spine uh, may reduce the value of uh, network verification going forward. I, I kind of agree that network verification in the long term makes more sense as a feature than a standalone product. And we see VMware taking Veriflow, which it acquired, and putting that into vRealized Network Insight. Uh, there is a feature, not a product. Uh, I think I'm going to push back, though, on the reduced value of it. Surely spine topologies is a simpler physical topology, but you've still got virtual networking, v-switches, software load balancers, micro-segmentation, yeah. and network verification can map all that, give you a model of it that's still going to be valuable. And then when you add in cloud and hybrid cloud, I think that value still increases. Yeah, I agree with you. I think increasingly the what Daniel says is correct. If you're thinking about it from the point of view of simplifying the physical underlays, yes, I agree. But the overlays are getting much more complicated and also things like firewalls. So you might have a microsegment in the campus that runs through a firewall and a microsegment that runs through a different firewall. And then you've got routing problems getting between the two. And if you make a change to a firewall here, does the connectivity break? Do you know? Right. And as, as you expand the number of firewalls because you're running them in virtual instances or you're using some other you know, edge uh, firewalling functionality, like if you're actually doing... Uh, using Lisp or EVPN to apply access list filters at the campus edge, are they valid sort of thing? So you've got, you're quite right. I think verification will become more important as the networks get more complex, even though we're reducing the complexity in the physical networks to some extent because they no longer have the control plane stuff that the overlays are doing. It does actually get much more complicated above the stack. So if you talk to people who are using the verification the form of verification technologies, you know, customers of forward networks, for example, um, they'll tell you that it's just unbelievably good for them because uh, I talked to a bank once and they had over a thousand firewalls, Juniper and Checkpoint <laughs> firewalls in their infrastructure. Right. That's that's 2,000 physical, 1,000 
HAPERS, uh-huh. and they would make changes to the firewall rules and then something would break and they would have no way. That sounds like a nightmare, yeah. Yeah, and there was paths and routing and, and this has been a tool that's allowed them to start to unpack some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I, but I do think over time, now the value of the verification is if it's multi-vendor, and multi-technology, then it has real value because then it works across everything. So whether you've got vendor A, B, C, D, E, right. you know, whatever, it works universally. So there is a potential for that product to be on its own. But I think it makes – I think the market dynamics and the money they need to do that tends to suggest that they'll end up working with a big vendor. They'll sell out to, a, you know, a, a deep pockets and buy them out because that, that big company won't want to leave them out there right. because um, it takes away the focus from their products. Right. The more you, the further up the stack you get, like formal verification means you don't care what switch is or what the operating system is or the SDN controller or anything. You spend all of your time in the verification. That's the brains. Well, that's a very valuable sales position to be in, mm-hmm. and companies will buy it out just because of that. Right. You want that to be sort of the home screen where folks are spending a lot of their time. Yes. And that's the lesson we learned from ESX Hypervisor for servers, as soon as people spent all of their time in the vSphere console, you know, <laughs> configuring up the ESX, they stopped caring about the servers and the operating systems much more. They're much more concerned about the future of their ESX because that's what they were in all day. Yeah. And so I think that's why formal verification will ultimately become a feature, not a product as such. So yeah. there, there's, there are other other plays at this. Um, Cisco has its WAN automation engine, which is in this space as well. And NAE, which uh, I don't remember what the acronym acronyms for, but it's Network Assurance Engine. Yes, yeah. Network Assurance Engine, which is... We did a podcast with them just after it was released. I think NAE was a very, is um, still in its opening stages, so it was, at the time, just focused on ACI and validating ACI policies. Yes. That, to me, felt like that should be a feature of ACI, not a separate product to it. Right. So, um, but, you know, then, of course, they could actually expand NAE to be much more. It could also start to you know, analyze security policies, plug into the identity management and things like that. So yes and no. I think it's unclear as to where the market will go. Uh, VMware, of course, is a multi-vendor company, more or less. So having a multi-vendor network verification tool does fit the portfolio for them because they don't care what's underneath. Absolutely right. And with NSX being a micro-segmentation play, then the VRealize Network Insights gives them that opportunity to give you better visibility into what's happening in the uh, overlay. Yeah, if you can think about it, you know, if you're doing something in the NSX and then it's plugging into the public cloud and you've got to go through the firewalls and the securities and the CDNs, having something that can check all that plumbing for you and also out to the campus and over the SD-WAN, that becomes a more natural, and as long as they keep it multi-vendor, if they try to cut corners and just focus on... (laughs) (laughs) I think they'd be crazy not to because the whole value of a network verification tool is that it covers everything, your switches, your routers, firewalls, load balancers, hardware and software. So yeah, that would be sort of (laughs) cutting off their nose to spite the face kind of a move. Now, the flip side of that is that VMware could give them enough money to actually expand and to invest in expanding the coverage. Mm -hmm. It just depends on how it goes. So that's what I'd be looking for if I was evaluating that product. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Daniel, for uh, the FU. And if you want to comment, critique, uh, offer some insight, you can go to packetpushers.net slash FU. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, moving on to the news, Cumulus Networks, they make the Linux-based network OS for white box switches in the data center. They've announced that the company is now targeting campus networks. Cumulus and Dell EMC are going to roll out switches targeting the campus, including one, 2.5, and 5 gig, 5 gig switches, and they'll support campus must-haves such as power over Ethernet and 802.1x. Uh, that is the sweet sound of a prediction coming right. Oh, really? Remember, remember about 18 months ago I said there's going to be a move by Arista and Cumulus into the campus? 
Because they have to, because there's a massive refresh lined up, uh-huh. and getting the software-defined campus going is where the future is for that. Yes, uh, and the total addressable market, I think, for campus is probably bigger than the data yeah. center, so it makes sense for them to expand. Well, I think there's a lot of pent-up <coughs> demand because most people have these uh, campus infrastructures that have been built up, and, and I read some research somewhere that suggested that like a lot of it's more than 10 years old, but it's all working fine, so nobody's actually motivated to change it. Right. And part of the reason behind Cisco's software-defined access strategy, that is their software-defined campus strategy, is to try and get that stuff rotated before other people get into the campus space. Mm-hmm. And been very successful for them, certainly in all of the press releases that Cisco's made and what they've told investors is that SDA has been a real big takeoff for them. And I think that's what we've seen. It was only like a year ago, Arista and Cumulus were saying, oh, no, campus is like, no, no, we don't need to be there. And I was going like, oh, yes, you do. And now they and are. Now they are. So I think that's interesting. There's sort of like the, the revitalized, you know, the campus was kind of like this phenomenal and, you know, nobody really cared. And as long as it was sort of ticking along, nobody bothered about it. Seeing Cumulus and Arista turn around and start to make strong moves into the campus is entirely predictable and probably long overdue. So I'm not overly excited about this, except in the sort of finally sort of thing, if you know what I mean. Sure. And the the pitch that they, Arista and Cumulus are both making is almost identical. They're saying, you know, use the same OS base in your data center and the campus uh, to streamline your management and operations. You can hook into both sets of switches with the same tools. Um, and we've got automation and telemetry to help you run the whole thing. Uh, both Arista, I think, and uh, Cumulus are also supporting VXLAN and EVPN if you want to build a campus fabric. And that's a compelling argument. There is no reason for the operating system for the campus switches to be different from the data center that I can see. Yeah, It fits Cisco's internal business model because it's a completely different – internally to Cisco, they're different companies. They're not a unified organization. Right. And so what makes sense for Cisco doesn't necessarily make sense for customers. That's just the way it is. <laughs> and But if they, you, you can spin that differentiator as a power, which I actually think it is, having one operating system in the data center as you do in the campus makes, it's just an operating system. It's really going to come down to the controller. And, of course, NetQ in the, in the Cumulus environment that drives those. Cause and NetQ is their telemetry uh, and an analytics tool, yes. Yeah, and, and SDN-ish. It's got some SDN campus stuff. So we'll see how it goes. They've announced a bunch of new features for uh, Cumulus Linux, uh, 802.1x, power over Ethernet, one gig and multi-gig, all of the things that you'd – not all, some of the things that you would expect. But the choice of EVPN for VXLAN is cool. And also that – you know, I've always had a bay in my bonnet about Lisp, for, that Cisco's using Lisp in the campus. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is going for EVPN VXLAN that for obvious like reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why would you develop a completely separate code base for a separate one? It's not necessary at all. It just doesn't make sense. The challenge here, of course, is that Cisco is saying they chose Lisp to lower the cost of the switches. Nobody else is. So maybe Cisco's just selling cheap switches for big money, or maybe they actually have a price advantage in the physical hardware. I haven't got an evaluation to make a decision either way on that. So, you know, but, you know, welcome Cumulus to the campus. Yep. And we've got and Dell. Actually, it's Cumulus and Dell, really. They're not talking about doing it on Whitebox yet. But they could, I suppose. Well, yeah, and I guess it would be a Dell sort of EMC bright box. But, uh, yeah, and Cumulus always extends its product line uh, once they get their toehold. So I would expect to see support for more mm. hardware coming out. Now, Cumulus on white box would be very compelling for a lot of organizations who really want to lower the cost of that wired Ethernet. Um, for companies who want to do Dell, so they get the service contracts and the tenders and the tick boxes and the there's a brand name on the outside and all that sort of stuff. 
what cumulus on Dell makes sense. But I think there's a large number of organizations who just want to drive the, you know, per port price down. And if they could start buying, you know, no brand name white box and shove that into the campus with cumulus on top, that would make a very good sense. I think there's a, but we're not going to see that in the first release. Right. And also if you're thinking about uh white box or just a campus refresh in general, don't forget Pika 8 as well. They're also doing a, a campus white box model. Uh, so you got a lot of choices out there. Mm, I think so. All right, moving on, the private equity firm Toma Bravo, they've made a $3.9 billion offer for Sophos, that's a maker of antivirus and anti-malware software and a suite of other security products. The board of directors at Sophos have endorsed the sale. Yeah, this is a UK company. So if you haven't heard about it, uh, many of our audience, 60%, 65% of our audience is US-based according to statistics, which is probably not very accurate. It's probably less than that in reality. But if you haven't heard of it, Sophos is in the UK. They sort of do a lot of mail and content scanning. And of course, it's Toma Bravo buying yet another security company um, into private equity, which is, continues the trend. Just for, just for fun's sake, I listed out all of the companies. So there's Barracuda, Bluecoat, Bomgar, Centrify, ConnectWise, Continuum, DigiCert, Entrust, Adaptive, Imperva, Imperata, Landesk, Logarithm, McAfee, SailPoint, <laughs> SolarWinds, SonicWall, Tripwire, and Vericode. Wow. Right? So Toma Brava owns all of those security companies. I don't know that they own all of McAfee. I think just a piece, but uh, yeah, it's still an yeah. impressive list. It is, and it's like... How many security companies can you own, like put under one management infrastructure? Is it like, are they going to make like a mega one and build them? Like, are they, the question in the back of my mind is, what do you do with all of those? <laughs> you know, do you build a, a, like a Silicon Valley style monopoly, like, like Uber tried to do by squeezing out all the competition by just cash flowing the biggest one? Or do you actually literally do something with these to weld them into a unified portfolio? Because a lot of these products are features. So over time, if they don't extract revenue from them in a short period of time, they'll be displaced by somebody else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, McAfee, for example, a lot of their security technologies are, are somewhat obsolete. And even the idea of doing virus scanning on the endpoint is going away as people go into SD-WAN type technology. Mm -hmm. Or it's done by the mobile device manager. Why would you have it standalone? Yeah. My impression with Toma Bravo is that, and this is just an impression, that they're looking to hold these companies for a while, maybe streamline them a little bit, uh, cut some fat where they can, which usually means layoffs, uh, maybe rationalize a few business lines, and then trot them back out to the public market or another buyer. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, just what are you going to do with that many of them? I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to have under a portfolio. So mm. uh, some of them are in different spaces, so it's not uh, a lot of overlap. But I, I was looking at Sophos's uh, financial results. It's a modestly steady business. They're trans transitioning to a subscription-based model, which we see happening a lot. Uh, they're seeing growth in the managed service provider and MSPs. Mm. And they've got 335,000 customers, which is a tidy number. Yeah, it could just be that Tomo Bravo is buying them for cash flow. Like it if you've got be. a steady subscription business, yeah. you've got a portfolio, what you do is diversify risk. You know, if they're talking about a shrinking economy going forward, maybe they just buy them for the revenue to to bolster their portfolio while it, while the possibility of a recession is on the on the cards. Yeah, and just a, a highlight for 2019, uh, the full year for financial results, Sophos brought in $710 million, uh, in revenue with profits of $53 million. So yeah, mm. like a tidy business. I also bet the value of the pound to the US dollar might have had something to do with it. <laughs> that could be. Yeah. That could be. 
All right, there's links in the show notes if you want to track down that story for yourself, but let's take a minute to tell you about one of our sponsors. That is CDN77. They're a content delivery network of choice for space agencies. They deliver Hubble images all around the world. They offer standalone end-to-end video processing and delivery platform called Streamflow. Streamflow serves content from 35 pops on five continents with daily peaks regularly exceeding five terabits per second with overall network capacity of more than 14 terabits per second. And there's no outsourcing. CDN77 develops and manages everything in-house, including its own DDoS protection, which is capable of mitigating and blocking any type of DOS or DDoS attacks within 10 seconds. They're also efficient. They can push 80 gigabits per second of live streaming through just one machine via server optimization. Customers get top-rated 24 by 7 live chat support with in-house engineers who communicate with you in real time. You can enjoy flexible pricing options, either pay-as-you-go or monthly plans. You can try it for free, 14 days, no credit card needed, plus a 40% off first payment bonus for Packet Pushers listeners. Just go to cdn77.com slash Packet Pushers. That's cdn77.com slash Packet Pushers. Thanks, CDN7, for being a sponsor. All right, getting back to news, we recently talked about Elon Musk's plan to use his SpaceX company to launch 12,000 satellites for broadband networking from space. Now, Ars Technica reports that SpaceX wants as many as 30,000 additional satellites. I can't get over space networking. I, <laughs> I just love it. Right? Space How networking. Space <laughs> networking in space. Ace, ace. Uh, so there's a few things here, and, and I spent quite a bit of time digging and poking at this. Basically, what SpaceX is doing is building an ECMP sort of fabric up in the space. So there's a, a very low orbit set of satellites. They're going to put some in mid-orbit and then some at the top so that you can actually get a much higher capacity across the network. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the first generations of the proposed network that they sort of put out, people were saying it's not enough bandwidth, but it's going to be very low latency because it's very close to the ground. And the speculation is that what they're doing is saying, well, we can get bandwidth up, and if you've got a low, la- a long latency path that you can have, we'll – ramp you up into the higher layers so it can take a longer path. But mm-hmm. if you pay for a, high la- a low latency path or pay a higher fee, you can have a short, fast path across the across their infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So this means they've got better revenue. The overall revenue thing looks better, and it'd be interesting to see how it goes. Now, the challenge here, of course, is why would SpaceX want to build this network? And when you go and dig into this, and I think I've said this in previous shows, there's not that many people who actually want to send stuff to space. <laughs> <laughs> so entirely likely that SpaceX needs something to make revenue to survive. And there's only so many, like a lot of the other space programs were only doing like three or four launches a year, like right. our, the Russians and so forth. Yeah. And all of a sudden SpaceX has come along and is doing like a launch every month or more. Mm-hmm. And everything that needs to be lifted into space is kind of gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? They need, there's, there's still a market for bigger rockets, apparently, yeah. Yeah. Uh, bigger payloads, like big satellites. But for everything else, SpaceX is kind of like uh, run out of customers, potentially. Or, and so it might take several years for new businesses to emerge that can take up this cheap rocketry that he's built to boost payloads into orbit. Like if you're a company who's been thinking about, if only I had a cheap way to get something into space, I could build this business. Right. Well, now you can, because but you could not have predicted, say, five years ago that SpaceX would be the success that it is, and now it's kind of ahead of the market. Does that make sense? It does, and to me, this uh, this whole thing has a little bit of an air of I mean, pyramid scheme may be too uh, punitive, but it's like, I've got this rocket business, I need to get it off the ground, so I'll start mm. a space networking business to fund my rocket business, but are there any customers for the space networking business, never mind the rocket business? The answer to that is yes. I you think, think so? there's enough. Yeah. There's uh, plenty of unserved areas in the world where 
high-speed internet is not possible, mm-hmm. and traditional satellites are just too expensive and not, you know, based on legacy ideas. So if you're thinking about places like rural Africa or whatever, and you want to get, and if you want to provide cloud services to an oil exploration in Central Africa mm-hmm. or in Antarctic, you know, that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. this is just golden opportunity for that, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, get a little bit of an SD-WAN box out there at the edge. You've got a low latency path for voice calls and stuff, and you've got a long latency path for bulk data transfers. And, yeah, there's probably a business there. Okay. So we'll see. But, I mean, they need it because SpaceX needs to, you know, the the articles that I've read says SpaceX needs uh, this amount of money to survive. They need to fly this many rockets at this price point. There's not that much. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see. We'll see. Yes, but uh, yeah, it does make sense though because if they've got the the other suggestion was that they would have to continually boost satellites into orbit. They're putting very small power, uh, very small satellites. They've got very short power, um, fuel loads, so they're only going to last three or four years before they'd have to be replaced. Mm-hmm. That is both a feature and a bug, of right. course. Planned obsolescence, <laughs> more rocket launches. Yes, I see. More that. rocket launches, but it also means that they can iterate the technology very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think they're going to bet on the fact that once they've got the network up and running, they, it makes more sense to iterate the satellites quicker than it does to actually send up big satellites with tons of fuel or to try and put satellites up that they can refuel. That's, sure. you know, yeah. whatever. So we'll see. Part of the issue, though, in addition to trying to build out that business uh, and just attract customers is that there are also other satellite competitors and they have to work with the International Telecommunications Union and other organizations on spectrum sharing and also mm. ensuring that 42,000 satellites in space don't collide with other things that are up there. Yeah. Because so. the other the other satellite organizations are also dramatically ramping up their requests. Yes. This doesn't mean that they'll put them there. Right. They might change their minds and you know, go back for a lower count like we've already seen, but we'll see. But yeah. they're just staking out their ambitions, I think, and saying... We're... Well, if there's a chance you're going to go down that path and it takes years for the ITU to accept and review and approve, and if this is something that you want to follow, then you put the approval in and see how it goes. Wait, right, now reserve the space up front, uh, yeah, and then adjust... Yeah, really old-fashioned idea, Very not very Silicon Valley, not very <laughs> bandwidth on demand, very... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, space networking is cool, so we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, the UK telecom provider O2 has switched on its 5G network. Dun, 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 dun. There's now uh, 5G yes. service available in Belfast, Cardiff, Edinburgh, Edinburgh, London, Slough, and Leeds. Well, you said Slough right. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, notably, nowhere really important except for London, and even then it's only a few suburbs of London. Mm-hmm. Not really all that much news that a, a UK uh, mobile phone provider has switched on 5G, but what is unique is it costs nothing extra. Yes. Like nada. Uh, they don't even charge you for the SIM, which I thought is, oh, uh, no. yeah, g- given that telcos have been telling investors that 5G is a massive opportunity for more <laughs> revenue and consultants and analysts have been going like, it's about the new services and more revenue. And what I've been saying is it's just more speed for customers, uh, in particular latency, mm-hmm. uh, because of the way the 5G carries the signal, if you're actually on 5G signaling, 4G still runs in a 3G PP mode. Mm-hmm. So 4, 5G actually moves to a much better native IP over radio type environment. So the latency of that is much lower. So that's an improvement. But it, it, I think this validates my view that 5G is A, in the consumer market, only about reducing the cost of the infrastructure through software-defined infrastructure. Hmm. And that's it. And obviously, UK 5G gets switched on and it doesn't cost extra. Boom. Although I noted in the press release they're touting this new music streaming service and some kind of partnership with Facebook Oculus. So maybe that's a sort of add-on where they can make up for it. Yeah, no, that's just to get some press. You know, <laughs> if you want to get some coverage in the legacy press, you say, our 5G does 
virtual, virtual reality. reality is like and and you know the old legacy media will pick that up and you know it's it's just whatever <laughs> that's a little bit you know a little bit of a sprinkle of glitter it, no one cares <laughs> really how many oculuses do you have a and b if you have one are you really going to run it over 5g no yeah if you lived in the very limited coverage area that's got it right. so like and I mean, and the flip side of this, of course, is that O2 doesn't actually have the spectrum to do full 5G anyway. They only have 40 kilohertz of 5G spectrum, so they can't actually do full rate 5G, which mm -hmm. is the dirty little secret here. Interesting. Uh, the spectrum allocations that have been handed out are quite limited, and uh, O2 is one of the providers that didn't big, big money. 3G, um, there's another provider called 3. They actually have 140 kilohertz of spectrum, and they're going to be the only organization for the time being who can offer you the full whack of 5G. Because they only have 40 kilohertz, they can't do the gigabit right. wire 5G. Yeah. Right. Okay. Makes sense. So it's not, as, it's not nearly as simple as it sounds. It never is. Never no. Is. All right, moving on. The European Union has accused Broadcom of anti-competitive behavior, and it's ordered the chipmaker to change a variety of business practices related to its set-top box and modem businesses. The EU says Broadcom made agreements with six customers to give those customers rebates, early tech access, and other benefits in exchange for making Broadcom the exclusive provider. Yeah, that's no surprise. We've seen this happen many times before that Broadcom has been a on the sharp edge of business practices. <laughs> the sharp um, edge. Yeah, uh, we've seen in the in the networking industry the Broadcom ASICs very much a closed attitude, and you have to sign NDAs to use the APIs and mm -hmm. to get access to the data. And we haven't had a lot of data to give you because Broadcom doesn't publish it and doesn't let us share it. So it is a criticism that Broadcom is a fairly uh, sharp competitor. Yeah, and it looks like this time around they've been too sharp. So this is very Qualcomm. It could be possible that Qualcomm and Broadcom have been using these tactics and sort of one-upping each other to close the market out and lock each other out of markets, whether they've been getting into a competitive battle of I'm going to get harder and, and more Ill more illegal. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the EU has basically said that Broadcom is anti-competitive and you have broken antitrust rules. Bad boys. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and there is enough evidence to support this sort of generally to say, yeah, that's not unsurprising. Right, and they're calling these, uh, the EU is calling these interim measures. Broadcom has 30 days to comply. Uh, the EU press release doesn't say what actions it might take against the company if it doesn't meet these interim measures, but the, the shot has been fired across the bow. Uh, that's how governments work. They don't, you know, it's not like you, you get a get a speeding ticket when you speed break the speed limit. At this level, it's you think about it, you give them a nice warning, <laughs> right. and then you give them the not very nice warning, that's this one, <laughs> and then if they don't, they take them to court and get really upset, and then it's billions. And then if you're Google, of course, you take them to court, you pay the billions and laugh all the way to the bank. Yeah. Yeah. And right. Apple, for that matter. True. All right, well, we'll keep an eye on that story to see how it progresses. Uh, another quick break to tell you about our other sponsor, ExtraHop. They are the enterprise cyber analytics company delivering performance and security from the inside out. IT and network operations teams are responsible for managing the applications and infrastructure that modern enterprises depend on, but SDN, cloud, and shadow IT create blind spots, especially when it comes to applications that can't be instrumented. ExtraHop is the leader in network analytics. They help teams like yours rise above the noise of tool sprawl and enterprise complexity. They offer complete visibility with machine learning to help you make quick, confident decisions about your IT environment. You can explore the ExtraHop performance platform at extrahop.com slash packetpushers. Back to the news. The startup Pensando Systems has emerged from stealth in a fanfare of cloudy buzzwords and VC hype. Uh, it's founded by four former Cisco executives and ex-Cisco CEO John Chambers is chairman of the board. Pensando makes a computer chip to process and store data generated at the cloud edge. 
got no idea what that means. I read, <laughs> I read a couple just, of press releases and I'm like, oh, so what does it do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you watch the CNBC video that came out with this? I thought about it and then I thought, no, there's going to be yeah, no information. It was there. a bunch of John Chambers word salad that just didn't make it. He was trying to explain what it was and I could just, and, and then the interviewer said, but what does this mean for stocks? And it was just like, <laughs> you know, it was like, wow. I mean, he, so somewhere in the line, it, it really looks like John Chambers has burned some favors to get three minutes of exposure on CNBC, but Pansando isn't ready to be out of stealth yet. Uh, if you read the, uh, that was my reading of the situation. Did that make sense? Uh, I don't, it seems like they've been working for a long time. They've raised a ton of money over $250 million. So here's what I, I mean, like two. Here's what I pulled from the press release. The quote, the foundation of the Pensado platform is a custom, fully programmable processor optimized to execute a software stack delivering cloud compute, networking, storage, and security services wherever data is located. Uh, So it sounds like this slides onto a server, does some kind of processing. There is also a controller to control all these edge devices. but that's all that it says. <laughs> so the best guess that I can give you, because the Pensando website hasn't been updated. Uh, so what's unique about Pensando is it actually consists of the four people, the four executives who are, were quite successful at Cisco in doing spin-out and spin-ins. Mm-hmm. So the first uh, spin-out was FCOE and U- UCS, and the second one was ACI. And these were the people that John Chambers would give $500 million or a billion dollars to. They'd take all of the, steal all the best engineers from inside of Cisco, take them off to another building, beat them over our head for a year or two and come back with a product that's half half ready. Mm-hmm. And then Cisco would go out and sell it and then spend five years turning it into something. So UCS, when it first came back, uh, basically it's only its key to success was that they developed a network adapter chip, the VIC, virtual interface card that okay. Cisco has inside the UCS, and the uh, unified uh, UC switches, which allowed them to do fiber channel over Ethernet. So instead of servers having to have fiber channel interfaces, and Ethernet interfaces, Cisco was able to unify those together. Very popular. That's basically the features of the UCS. It's got a fancy NIC card that does FCOE and Ethernet, and the fancy NIC allows you to virtualize the hardware. So fundamentally, the key value of the UCS is the fact that it's got like a Mellanox in it, a Mellanox mm-hmm. NIC or mm-hmm. a, a, any of the other smart NIC companies. And this, if you read into this press release, it looks as if they've taken the SDN controller ideas from ACI and the fancy NIC card ideas from UCS and then turned into a separate product. Now, AWS does this in what they call their Annapurna chipset. So this is actually the NIC card that goes inside the server. And the important part about that from AWS, and this is what they talk about in their YouTube videos where they talk about the value of owning that silicon, is that that ASIC is actually a computer inside the computer. When AWS bare metal boots, it actually boots the NIC first. And then the NIC takes over as a root of trust, as a computer within the computer, so that then boots an operating system separate. So that that is how AWS orchestrates its fleet and guarantees the security. So everything that goes in and out of the server goes through the Annapurna and gets security scanned and security controlled. They watch the BMC, the baseboard motherboard, base motherboard controller, and all that sort of stuff is all done in this computer. And if you're a cloud provider, this is a godsend because now you can stick anybody's hardware in there put this card in and that becomes the point of administration. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yes. And that does sound like where Pensando would be going based on the limited information we can glean from the press releases. Yeah. So if you want to sort of get more in that, have a look at the Nitro. There's a link in the show notes to the AWS Nitro system where they explain some of that. But $278 million in funding now means that they've they've got 
like obviously they've got a proven history, so people are going to give them money. Yep. They've got John Chambers on the board. But their history wasn't as great as people make out in the sense that the products that they developed often came back half finished. And then it took several years of Cisco investing much more money in them to round them out. So, mm-hmm. for example, ACI, when it first arrived, wasn't all that excellent. And the product has had several years of development to reach the final position it's in now where customers are saying it actually works. I wouldn't want to have a track record. I wouldn't be going too close to this based on their track record of producing incomplete products. Mm-hmm. The product is probably useful. If you have one of these nicks and edge nodes, like in the telco pop, or if you're building an edge node around factories and you've got this to control the server to make sure that it's virus scanned and malware protected and that it's, you know, all that sort of stuff, that could be quite valuable. So there's something there. Right. I'm just not... And that's my yeah. assumption that what they're doing, we're bu- we're giving you a device for a service provider or a factory or whatever to do some local processing at the edge uh, and then chuck it up somewhere else where they need to. They're positioning themselves as an AWS competitor. They reference AWS Nitro in particular. They're calling hmm. it the democratization of the cloud, which is a, a wonderful marketing spin. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sonny Giandani has, has never been one to not miss an opportunity to bloviate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to say, to tell them, you know, to to make big noises about their products and to make rather, you know, make large claims about the product that they're promoting and get and they've been able to get away with it before. This time around, I'm not so sure. This is definitely not a Cisco thing. I, they're not close to Cisco and HPE is leading the fun, one of the funding rounds right. here. Yes. So it's, you know, John Chambers is on board. He's actually got substantial funds, of course. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And if you'll allow me one pedantic moment as an English major, uh, the press release misuses the word marquee. Uh, The press release puts in marquee with a Q-I-S, which is actually a rank of nobility. I think they mean marquee with a Q-U-E-E, which means a sign (laughs) over a building displaying a featured attraction. Uh, I just had to. I apologize. Pedantic moment is over. That's really not good in your coming out of stealth. And notably, their website isn't up. Right. You can go to pensando.io, but there's nothing there except a couple yeah. of links to the press releases. It really looks like somebody said, well, you know, we're ready to go. I've got a three-minute slot on the CNBC. <laughs> Let's go. <get> website. <laughs> and then they just stood up and, and said something, something, and it doesn't look. Anyway, here's hoping they get it finished. Right, right. We'll mm. keep an eye on this. This seems like, it, at the very least, it could be some fun. There, There's there's something there, right? Yeah. There, there is definitely there is. value in an SDN-controlled NIC but this, uh, they've got a lot of money. They've got more, you know, but I would like to see one of the other smart nip makers seeing what they're doing. And they're all headed in this direction as well. Right. All right. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, Axios is reporting that starting December 1st, China is going to require any company with a network in China, that means uh, Chinese and foreign companies, to, quote, open their networks and deploy government-approved equipment. Uh, th- there's not a lot of detail in this Axios story, so I went digging on the Internet and found a, a law blog that covers China. Uh, they said, quote, this means intercompany VPN systems will no longer be authorized in China by anyone, including foreign companies. This in turn means all company email and data transfer will be required to use Chinese-operated communication systems that are fully open to the China Cybersecurity Bureau. So, yeah. Oof. Not surprising, right? And basically, you know, with all the fuss that we've seen going on with China and Hong Kong, and we've seen uh, various... Uh, consumer brands like Blizzard and, and the National uh, Basketball Association, National and Association Apple, and so on. <laughs> yes, Apple, Google, Facebook, all that sort of stuff. I think we're coming to the point where China is basically saying we don't want uh, foreign country companies working in our markets. But because if you open up your networks like this, and there was other articles where China was saying. We're not trying to steal your intellectual property using this thing. <laughs> right. Okay, sure. Sure. <laughs> Probably because they've got other ways of getting it, perhaps, but notwithstanding, um, 
I think if I was a US company doing business in China and I had to open up my intra-company communications, like break open my VPNs to give access, that means I now have to isolate my China operations completely away from my main network. Yep, absolutely. And at that point, you would have to be thinking, how, what's the value of being in the Chinese market? It's... I mean, the value is always what it's been, billions and billions of consumers for your product. And so, yeah, you spin out a Chinese subsidiary and just open up everything to them and then try to wall that off from your U.S. Yep. operations as tightly as you can. But just know going in, <laughs> they're going to see everything and have access to everything because it's their country, their laws. Yeah. So if you want to be in China, you're going to have to build a, basically a whole other company that doesn't have any Pretty access much. to your main network because yeah. it's not going to be. Uh, and that's got a cost uh, in terms of efficiency and workflow. Uh, the, more strategically, I just wonder how hard China is going to push Western companies here. This feels like they're sort of pushing back like the trade war thing. This feels like a reverse trade war type. You, you sort you know, of wonder that, that, you know, could this be a bargaining chip like, okay, take away the restrictions on Huawei. Hey, United States, do that. And then maybe we'll soften up these regulations here on getting yeah. full access to your network in China. Mm. Yeah. So there, there could be a, a bargaining chip uh, aspect to this yes. as well. Yep. Yeah, I, and I think also China's sort of flexing their muscles here to see what the U.S. government will do to react to this. So by freezing, you know, reducing the MBA revenue coming out of China is actually good for China because that revenue isn't being siphoned into the U.S. economy. There's sort of a nudge there. And there's also a political edge here. They're trying to push the U.S. government. And if they try and express more control over their economy and their environment and their social environment, what will the rest of the world do, if anything? Right. Uh, so there's there's a there's a feel of game strategy or like or gameplay here where political and social uh boundaries are being pushed to see what they can get away with i don't they'll pull back if if somebody starts to push back then they may pull back but we'll see well i mean the signals they're getting from companies like blizzard and the national basketball association are oh geez china will do whatever you want just don't cut off access yeah. to our markets and so sure why not push and take everything yeah, well, I mean, if they can get away with it, they're using capitalism against they democracy, right? <laughs> they absolutely so, are. Uh, which is, if that's the goal, if that's the game strategy that they're pursuing, so that, well, that would make a kind of sense. So good for them uh, if that's the goals you want to pursue, but the rest of the world has to come together in some way and make a, a collective decision. I'm not going to get into the politics or the stuff. There are other people giving much smarter takes, but... From a networking professional and an infrastructure point of view, uh, if you have a business operating in China, you are going to face the fact that everything that's coming through there is no longer, to some level or another, is open to scrutiny by other parties through the firewall. Yep. An interesting point to note is that the, the first versions of the, the Chinese Great Firewall was actually built by Cisco, by the way. <laughs> uh, various rumors around to that effect. And the suggestion was that Cisco actually got a major contract to build the early versions of that and may still be involved today. So Wouldn't be surprised. Wouldn't be surprised. Um, but I suspect it's more likely to be done by China today than to require a U.S. company to be involved now. I would assume, yeah. Mm. So just an interesting take, but it does have a direct impact on your infrastructure. If you put servers over there, they're open to being intercepted and networks and so forth. All the backdoors, a lot of companies that were based in the U.S. were giving backdoors to staff to get away, and I think a lot of anti-China stuff has been done over those networks, and this is being used to fix that. Yeah. Would be the ostensible move. Yeah. 
Uh, another story we'll keep an eye on. Here's our last piece for the day. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, Greg, you found this article, has an article noting a significant drop in applications to elite MBA programs from 2018 to 2019. And, and you had some comments on your experience with <laughs> MBAs. Yeah. I, I have a lot of uh, personal animosity towards and people with MBAs who made my life quite miserable. Um, back in the early days of my career, people it was very popular for people to go into MBA programs and the MBA programs would tell them that IT is the way of the future. So when you finish this MBA, go and get a job in IT as an IT manager, and that will, you'll be on a fast track to the board. Mm. And so we had all of these car salesmen with MBAs turning up, <laughs> attempting to run IT companies or being IT managers, and it was a disaster because the purpose of MBAs was to teach people that management is completely independent from the product or the process. It's just you just got to manage, right? Mm. And so you don't actually have to know because, uh, you know, leadership is about leadership, not about actually being budgets and spreadsheets, which it actually is. And uh, everybody who came out of an MBO program, because you spend two years, and in the case of US MBAs, you often spend anywhere from thirty to $80,000 to get your MBA. Oh, possibly uh, even much more than that, yeah. Yeah, potentially, uh, if you're doing the live-in stuff. Um, you want to be making sure you're getting a pay rise at the other end, oh, which yeah. a lot of them weren't getting. They were over-promised and under-delivered. We've heard that before. Uh, you know, it's roughly the same amount of work as a CCIE or a JNCIE, one of the advanced certification programs. It's roughly 800 to 1,200 hours. Challenging, but it doesn't require a huge commitment. And it's actually not as complex as those people make out. I remember sitting down with an MBA person and going over the curriculum and going like, is that it? So <laughs> <laughs> you're finding that hard? And they're like, yeah. And I go like, oh. Anyway, um, so I did find this. So the fact that MBAs are winding back, and some of the drops are really substantial, anywhere up to 25% in the US, I know the same thing's happening here. And in fact, um, in the article itself, they're talking about them doing online MBAs, which are much cheaper, <laughs> which is just like a desperate, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the value of MBAs has always been not the MBA itself, but you actually just bought yourself a squad of friends who can drag you up as you go along. So the people you do your MBA with actually become a group of people that you... Right, a network that you can rely on you know, to advance yeah. your career, yeah. Yeah, so they'll go and get a job somewhere and they'll say, hey, you know, you should go and talk to this person. There's a job going and you should, that sort of thing. So doing it online is not quite so valuable. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the world can live much better with fewer MBAs and people who've actually got a brain. <laughs> like true leadership is what we need, not people with a qualification and believing they're talented. Yes. Uh, mm. Yeah. Uh, I feel similarly. I feel similarly. Yes. All right. Well, that's all the news analysis for today. Stay tuned for a conversation with ExtraHop. We're going to be talking about cloud networking and how ExtraHop takes advantage of cloud traffic mirroring capabilities to feed their network detection and response capabilities. That's coming right up. Welcome to Tech Bytes, a 15-minute podcast on compelling ideas and technologies in enterprise IT. Today's show is sponsored by ExtraHop, and we're going to talk about networking and the public cloud. And yes, you still need to do networking in the cloud, but things are going to be a little more dynamic. Our guest for the conversation today is Matt Cawthorn. He is VP of Cybersecurity Engineering at ExtraHop. Matt, welcome to the podcast. And to start the discussion, can you give us your perspective on, on networking in the cloud? It, it's kind of the same, but also different. Uh, that's a perfectly concise way to describe it, I would say. Um, you know, <laughs> many, of the, many of the constructs are very, very similar, but it's all software now, as everybody knows. This isn't new. But, you know, one of the things that's really struck me in recent years is just the dynamism of the thing, the network. So as, as a, a formerly relatively static connective tissue for the enterprise, now it's a, it's a dynamic living, breathing part of these environments in the cloud. Subject I think a lot to, of the times the network is the only thing in the cloud that's true. 
you know, the, we, we instantiate containers, we create VMs, everything's done via software, but the network still is the only absolute source of truth, I think. Yes, I, I think I would very strongly agree with that assessment, which is one of the reasons why, which I'm sure we'll get to later, we believe so passionately about the importance of, of NDR in the cloud. Mm. NDR is? Uh, network detection and response as okay. the category just, in security. Just in case yeah. you hadn't heard of that term before. Yes, we thank you. That yeah. up before we dive in, but yeah. I've already started with the acronyms, right? Yeah. <laughs> Getting back to that idea about what makes cloud different, you, you, you talk about software. One of the things we talk about on the show a lot is how folks tend to, with their on-premises network, it's a little static, maybe a little fragile. You don't want to change it too much. But with the cloud, you sort of have to be able to get in there and respond to that dynamism. And as you said, that means software. So we're talking about APIs and software tools. How does that affect operations? Well, you know, it, this is interesting. I'm actually going to rewind years ago who, who a former um, peer of mine that I was working with. He was a diehard network guy. And he said, you know, all I work with anymore is servers, appliances, and software. Uh-huh. And he goes, I haven't, I haven't touched my routers in ages. And it's funny because he, he back then, this was years and years ago, he made this call that the, the network was sort of morphing into something else that was going to be managed by other things. And I think that the cloud is the sort of logical end of that sentiment where, you know, we've got these, these constructs where I can stand up a VPC as, you know, via a JSON definition or a configuration file now. It's just this mm. incredible sort of dynamic, fluid approach to the infrastructure that we've relied on for years in a static way. But at the same time, standing up those resources, you still need to have security controls in place. You need to be able to monitor and troubleshoot it. You've got to meet compliance requirements. So how does that happen? Well, absolutely. So here we believe that the the sort of last mile of, of the cloud in, in many respects is the security, especially from an observational perspective, because many of the observation points come by way of logs or VPC flow logs at best from a sort of uh, network perspective. And understanding the assets on the wire and the transactions that they're that are traversing those assets the consumers the behavioral patterns that's one of the the largest gaps from a, a cloud security perspective that's out there and yeah. that's the gap that we singularly focus on addressing i think the the interesting thing about this traffic mirroring in vpa in aws or vtap in azure is that the developers can go off and start just doing stuff and you're still getting visibility. So even if they're not, if the communications loop between you and what the devs are doing or you and the project teams are doing in those cloud instances, as long as you've got the tap on the VPC and you're just getting all the traffic out and analyzing it, you, you can actually take a position where I can let them go until I can catch up or until their processes inform me or you know whatever because I've actually got something that's scanning that, collecting that data and analyzing that data. That's a, that's a new change for cloud. Before, you would have had to en- en- enable your NDR to say, watch this, watch this, watch this. And there was always a, a chance that you would miss something. And I think that's a unique feature to that. Yeah, and it was very... That's I'm glad you said that because that's completely true. And it was very reactionary and after the fact. It was the sort of ad hoc on-demand model to do traffic analysis, if you will, instead of this always-on, always-watching model, which has been proven for years now in the enterprise, in the in the, the formal enterprise. So, yeah, this model has been it's been a huge gap from a, just honestly, it's been a huge gap from the perspective of cloud, and because of the new developments on the traffic acquisition model from the infrastructure itself in these cloud providers. 
it's no longer an issue. And that's one that we're very excited to address. So are these uh, traffic mirroring services in the cloud? Are they just sort of a, a cloud version of a span or a tap port or can I actually do something different because it's in the cloud? So it's very, it's very akin to um, a traditional span mechanism, especially encapsulated span. Uh, in the case of AWS in particular, it's using VXLAN encapsulation, which you know doesn't really matter. The truth of the matter is as long as you can decapsulate it, you can analyze the packets, and that's what we're in the business of. So we can natively receive traffic that they mirror natively to us, decapsulate the VXLAN, and do our analysis from there. It's a really, really powerful development. I have to say, they've, I've, I've been very impressed with the, the forethought here, and they've got filtering capabilities. It's sort of at the ENI level. It's worth noting, uh, in, in the case of Amazon, you need to have the Nitro instance type in order to take advantage of the functionality. It's something that's not, uh, not necessarily out there, and mm. um, it's documented for sure, but it's not re- really well known. And I think that the incentives to move to Nitro are very strong from a cost perspective anyhow, so it'll mm. not be an issue for much longer. But if I want to do this traffic mirroring from AWS, I've got to have this Nitro entrance, you see. That's right. You have a okay. Nitro instance type. That's right. Okay. Mm. And that's. I think it's important to say that um, the clouds are doing this themselves, which is, I think, is the unique feature here. And they're kind of like the packet broker. So if you were somebody who had a network of physical taps in your network before, you would draw all the taps back to a packet broker and then send it off to the to the destinations that you wanted. An extra hop, your extra hop would have been one of those. Whereas now you don't need a packet broker to be able to to do that. The cloud's just delivering that functionality for you, just to a, a lesser or greater extent. That's right. It, it's a massive development from our perspective. You know, before we've been cloud ready for many, many years now. And in fact, going back years, we won awards for our, our cloud implementation, but it was done via other means. We had our, our traffic acquisition model was it, it was forwarder based. We had to have a, a, a forwarder running on the host mm-hmm. and that host would then copy those packets off and send it to us running up in the cloud. And that is one way to do it. It's got all sorts of um, scalability and implications from a, just from a, a deployment perspective and a, um, yeah, yeah. a maintenance and management perspective. And it's far uh, cleaner to do it natively from the infrastructure. Well, I always, always worried about if the developers didn't install it, I wouldn't be getting the packets. So then exactly. I had to have a tool that goes out and says, you know, here's my packet broker. I'm capturing from these, you know, instances, these cloud instances, but where's my total list and which ones aren't covered? That was the one thing I was always worried about. And I think the other interesting thing that you're doing here is you're also pulling in logs from the cloud platforms themselves. So you're still analyzing cloud formation and the, and the logs coming off Azure as well as part of the system. Well, so we're so we're actually in, we're we're primarily analyzing the passive network flows, but it's it's worth noting you bring up a really important point here is that because it's cloud native now, we are subject to all of the APIs and we can leverage all of the APIs that the cloud makes available to everybody. So for example, we have capabilities to um, take external data sources, although you know we're, we're primarily a network traffic analytics solution for NDR. Mm-hmm. We could we can actually integrate with other APIs to do automated remediation and invoke downstream workflows and orchestration events because of the cloud native functionality. That and that particular event horizon is something that, from a DevSecOps perspective, is just an expectation that's leveled against the cloud providers themselves and the vendors who serve the cloud customers. Yeah. And so here too, it's, it's just API as table stakes in the cloud. And 
we now, because of our API capabilities, we're able to do some very, very interesting things that are really hard to pull off in a traditional enterprise setting, frankly. Okay, and just to step back for a second to make sure I understand what we're talking about, if I'm leveraging the traffic mirroring capabilities in a public cloud provider, where am I sending them to ExtraHub? What is the ExtraHub product that's that's getting these packets and then doing some kind of analysis? Yeah, specifically, the, the ExtraHub product is RevealX. It's our NDR network detection and response product. And you know we would have one or more listening interfaces. And from a mirror configuration perspective, you say, hey, AWS, get these source interfaces and send them to RevealX, and we start our analysis in real time instantly. Yeah, okay. It's really, really nice. And then what is RevealX looking for? So RevealX is looking for a bunch of things. So now that we've got the packet streams, we actually do stateful full stream reassembly, which means that even though we're a passive listener that deploys like a legacy sniffer would, we actually do stateful stream reassembly. We have a state table and a connection table, and we see events from layer two all the way up into layer seven, like database transactions, HTTP, HTTPS, if it's TLS 1.3, encrypted, we can decrypt it and give you insights into the transactions, the disposition of those transactions, and, and all of the network segments that you mirror to us. And so segmentation is a big deal in the cloud and VPC segments of various uh, privilege levels and who's crossing those boundaries, all of those things, which, which transactions are allowed to cross those boundaries, all of those things you get instant insight into, as well as behavioral analytics from a machine learning perspective. So we know what deviant behavior looks like because we've baselined your AWS environments and we know what normal looks like, even in dynamic environments. We can baseline over time mm. and get season, like seasonality is taken into account is another way to think about it. Yeah, it's very, very powerful. Okay, so but this isn't like sort of your traditional IPS or next-gen firewall where you've got a bunch of signatures where you're looking for attacks. You're more seeing the kind of transactions going on and saying, hey, this is unusual. You, somebody else should take a look at this. That's right. So from a high level, it's, it's very, you bring up a super important point that I was about to skim right past. So thank you. You're <laughs> sure. saving me from myself. <laughs> um, we, we believe that detection in, from a network perspective is really should represent a strategy part of, or, or a spectrum of capability. Think of it that way. So the capability on one side is like a signature type capability. So I have a rule and I know that Let's say I have privileged segment A, non-privileged segment B, never the twain shall meet, right? Those mm -hmm. things just can't. And if we see traffic traversing from non-privileged to privileged, fire detection immediately. That's a rule that complies with some sort of binding business policy on your side. So you should have rules-based detection capabilities, and we do. But what we don't do is um, mire you with reams and reams of signature-based detections. Instead, we do behavioral analysis. And so instead of pattern matching inside of packets, we actually pattern match um, from a, from a rules-based detection uh, perspective all the way into layer seven. We can decapsulate, decrypt, get into the payload events themselves. So things like um, SQL injection, server-side request forgery, and other things like that, where you really need to get at the actual transaction body, we can do that. From a machine learning perspective, we've got the machine learning capabilities to baseline and understand aggregate behaviors and, and invoke predictive models, models that use peer grouping and privilege escalation as well. So we really cover the full gamut of detection methods and, and approaches 
from an NDR perspective. And we're pretty unique in that in that way. Hmm. I think what I really like about this is the the ability to capture packets in the cloud, which is one. It means you get the visibility that you want and you're relying on the cloud. You always had to rely on the cloud platform to do that, I think. And the fact that that's now here is important. The second thing is you've got the extra hop NDR here giving you the analysis of the payloads of the packets. And it's not only just by analyzing payloads because a lot of it's going to be encrypted. You're going to be fingerprinting and using a range of tools to do it. But you've also got the capability to integrate the extra hop tool via APIs to other tools. So if extra hop comes up with an alert or an event, you can then trigger other things to happen. Maybe it's you want to shut down the internet access because this is a threat or something, or you're overloading or exceeding budgetary requirements. What do you do? Well, what's taking up the traffic and stuff? So those things are hard to do in some of the clouds. They just don't tell you those things. Yeah, that's right. So one of the one of the interesting use cases is that I could I could take an event now based on a policy that we set and say, look, if this thing happens, it's really, really suspect or it warrants further adjudication up or down. And we want to do that in an automated way. And so I would send the event into, say, a SIM or the native cloud capabilities of your provider or the native logging capabilities, rather, of your provider. Mm-hmm. And we can also populate a message bus like SNS in the world of Amazon. And from there, invoke downstream events and orchestration methodologies that can do other things in the environment on behalf of your whatever your security controls are. And so that that's a the promise of native cloud capabilities is something that I believe we're we're really as an industry, the holy we, we're still wrapping our heads around. Um, especially from an NDR perspective. This is a very exciting time for us actually. Hmm. It is quite unique, especially with the security side the visibility for the security side. But for me, um, I have one of my one of my rules of networking is that networks have no analytics, they have no visibility, so we don't actually know if the network's working. And these tools actually put me back in control. That's, I... That's right. And, and because I think historically, and I might get a little overly opinionated here, but you know, historically we've just assumed, the industry has just assumed that everything's are just going to go up into the cloud and work as if by magic. certainly the cloud providers have not you know given that impression by any means yeah and think yeah exactly right so so you're you know the cloud providers are just leveling these assurances and and in most cases in many cases this is a very safe assumption to make but not all apps are created equal not all apps and services are, are are ready to take advantage of the capabilities or weren't written to be cloud first and many of the infrastructures are sort of lift and shift, which aren't necessarily conducive to cloud performance and sort of maximizing the things at your disposal. And the net result of it all is that without meaningful analytics, you can't inform any of these decisions. You can't inform your security controls and monitoring assessment and further improvement of those controls. You can't meaningfully detect things passively, detect illicit behaviors and others. And so now we're entering this new time where these things are no longer just like yeah. in the realm of possibility. They're just flatly there and native, they have which to be is there. They have to be, this sort of visibility has to be default. Otherwise, you've got nothing. The cloud doesn't give you, give you the, the tools to do this. I don't think they're ever going to do this, by the way. I don't think they ever can. Well, we're running up against our time limits here, but Matt, thank you for joining us. If folks want to find out more about NDR or RevealX, where would you send them? So first of all, from an NDR perspective, start at extrahop.com. We have a free online demo of an actual live attack scenario. It's running in perpetuity. So it's an actual real uh, compromise. 
that you can see unfold over time with a guided tour. And then perhaps more excitingly is that if anyone's interested in looking at this, you can actually request a free trial of the actual native NDR solution in your environment at extrahop.com slash trial and sign up there. Okay, great. We'll have those links in the show notes. Uh, we thank Matt for joining us and also Extra Hop for being a sponsor. And of course, we thank you for joining us for this episode of Tech Bytes. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. Follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>